Compiler is an original podcast from Red Hat discussing tech topics, big, small, and strange alike. What are tech hiring managers actually looking for? And do you have to know how to code to get started in open source? Listen to Compiler anywhere you find podcasts or visit redhat.com slash compiler. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am your host, Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. Joined, as I often am, by my collaborator, Cassidy Williams. Hi, Cassidy. Hello. I'm excited to be here. I know. You've lost your voice a little, so apologies A little bit, so I'll try not to be too whispery. Okay. (laughs) A big day of meetings yesterday. So today we're going to be talking to two folks from a company called Big Eye, Um, and I was perusing their site earlier today, and a lot of it has to do with sort of data monitoring and assessing data health for clients. It's interesting because this just came up. I was on a call with a client who's one of the biggest names in television. And we were talking about their AI ML models and how they decide what to recommend to people. And one of the things they were kind of stressing was, you won't know if the recommendations are good or if it's working unless you really understand what your data is and if you're looking at the right metrics. And I think you know they, they maybe they called it like clean or robust or trustworthy, but in some measure health. So I think that's a really interesting sort of problem that a lot of folks are facing is there's so much to measure. And once it goes into the AI ML, it can be kind of a black box. So you really got to understand like garbage in, garbage out, you know, am I feeding this, this machine the right stuff? All right. So without further ado, Kyle and Igor from Big Eye, welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast. Thanks, Ben. Glad to be here. So the first thing we always ask folks to do is just give us a quick flyover, date yourself a little, How'd you get into the world of programming, software, technology, um, and what landed you together at Big Eye? Uh, maybe I can let Igor introduce himself, and uh, I think he's got a pretty fun story of getting into data, so maybe we can start there. Yeah, I can definitely get started. Thanks for having us, Ben and Cassidy. Um, so I'm Igor Grasnov. I'm the co-founder and CTO at Big Eye. I am a software engineer by training, but I've gone, I got into data through Hadoop. My first job out of college was actually at an enterprise software company. They did analytics for call centers. And part of that was we need to get with the times in terms of big data analytics. So let's move our analytics stack into Hadoop. And so I wrote raw Java MapReduce jobs on like Hadoop point two or whatever it was wow. back in the day. And then <laughs> they, re- they released, uh, uh, Cloudera released Impala and it was like, wow, SQL on Hadoop, so cool. And um, obviously, uh, it just took off from there. From there, I got into data warehousing. I did it at a company called One King's Lane. They were an e-commerce company back in the day. Uh, I think they're still around. They're a subsidiary of Bed Bath and Beyond now. I was the first data engineer there. Built out the warehouse uh, for them. Learned a lot about BI and ETL and data modeling and working with the business and understanding what marketing analysts want and understanding what product analysts want. And from there, went to Uber in late 2014, was one of the first data uh, engineers there, stood up the data warehouse um, at Uber. It was a year and a half of just nonstop build the data team and platform uh, for a while there. And I met Kyle along the way in 2015, where I was the data engineer and he was the data scientist. And I was wondering why Kyle had to write these very long and expensive queries on the warehouse. And my <laughs> job was to make them more optimized. And so ever uh, we became friends ever since then. And I 
did a lot of work on different analytics projects at Uber. Most of my time was spent on experiment analytics, so A-B tests and analyzing A-B tests for perspective. If you are in any major city you are, uh, and you open the Uber app, you are probably simultaneously in a couple of hundred of experiments. And that's everything from pricing to what services are available to you to how many cars you see on the map, so on and so forth. And that we built a platform to do analytics automatically. Uh, for that. And obviously data quality was a big problem for us because if the data was wrong, the analytics was wrong and our, our data scientists got mad, the analysts got mad, everyone got upset. And we built a lot of tooling internally at Uber. Kyle can definitely talk more to that um, in order to manage the scope and scale of data there. And we took, want to take a lot of those lessons and bring them to the rest of the market and save data engineers time from reinventing the wheel themselves to using something that's already tried and true and can save them time and let them do the more interesting things that they want to do. Cool. Gotcha. So the two of you met when Kyle was costing you money <laughs> and you had to rewrite his and, stuff and, make it less and expensive. Sleep. Igor was managing the, the data <laughs> warehouse at the time. So uh, if I if I backed up a queue or, uh, or caused performance issues, uh, it was not just the company cash that was a problem. It was also keeping Igor uh, up late at night. So he had a very personal investment in getting those pipelines working better. Gotcha. Kyle, briefly, yeah, tell us a little bit about um, your background. Um, and then from there, we can jump into some more sort of technical and company-oriented questions. Sure. I studied industrial engineering in school, um, so not computer science, uh, notably. Um, I actually think this is like a recurring theme, especially in data circles as people come from physics or econometrics or uh, statistics or, you know, industrial engineering and, and not from computer science. A lot of the time, I think that's had a big effect on the way the data sort of um, industries evolved. But um, so I come from industrial engineering in school, originally from Florida. Um, and I my first job uh, in tech was while I was in school, while I was studying. Um, and I interned at a company called GrooveShark. Um, so if you mm. uh, were into streaming music before Spotify, I was going to say over. that's an old one. I yeah. remember that. Yeah. <laughs> Rings a bell. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so there's like RDO back in the day. Uh, there was a Groove Shark. There was a whole bunch of them. Um, and uh, so I worked there um, as an analyst and I uh, was writing Hive jobs to pull data uh, off the data warehouse about listener statistics. A lot of that was used for uh, marketing. Um, so obviously Groove Shark was very heavily ad supported. Um, so I was doing analytics on listener patterns and uh, how many uh, track listens we got and, and things like that for our marketing team to do ad sales. Moved to San Francisco in 2013. Um, a friend of mine uh, was working at a company called Discuss at the time. He told me to buy a one-way flight out there and see what it was like. I'd never been to California before. Um, I'd only been out of Florida once in my life, I think, up to that point, actually. Um, wow. But I sold my gaming computer uh, to a friend. I had a full tower uh, dual GPU gaming computer and uh, sold that to a buddy for the flight over there. Uh, took a one-way flight to San Francisco and then uh, just pounded the pavement and applied for jobs uh, and wound up a couple months later as one of the first people working on data at Uber. Uh, this was, yeah, they were, maybe the company was about 200 people at the time. Um, wow. So I think there were four people doing data science and uh, three people that were sort of early data engineers. So they were managing like our Postgres uh, read replicas. And I was the first person on that team that was querying the read replicas um, and pulling some basic stats about like how many trips are people taking and 
when they try to sign up, where do they tend to drop off? Big surprise. It was the credit card screen. Um, but that was still useful information back then because that's kind of how early uh, right. early stage it was. So that's I could have told you that, but you could validate it. You could validate. <laughs> yeah, some. I mean, it's it's still good to know, even if you have a hunch, right? Yeah. Uh, so that was kind of how I got sort of into uh, into tech, you know, quote unquote, for real at a company that was growing quickly in SF. Not to um, not that Groove Shark wasn't you know real tech or anything like that, but I was an intern, was not quite the same. Um, so yeah, that was sort of my entry into the world of data. That's such a leap of faith. That's awesome. It was uh, it was a fun time. It was uh, a lot of trying to stretch a small amount of cash that was in the bank, and <laughs> there was a lot of ramen, and uh, and sometimes I would go out for a burrito in the mission, and that was a treat. <laughs> so yeah, no, that was a time I, I remember very fondly. Very cool. So was there some moment of inspiration with the two of you having met at Uber and working there together? You felt like, uh, Igor, you kind of saying this, you were learning things about data health, about how to work between a data scientist and someone managing a warehouse. You thought, you know, you sort of had a moment where like, we could build this better or a tool you built internally that you sort of thought like we could spin this out. Like what was, what was sort of the genesis to go from that meeting each other there to deciding to form a, a company together? I mean, initially, I think we, we made friends by sort of challenging each other. We were, I don't think we initially weren't immediate friends. Maybe you can, you can talk about that. I can talk a little bit about the tools. Yeah. So actually Kyle, um, and I met at Uber even before the, he was, I was fixing his pipelines. I, when I came in and started setting up the warehouse with my team, I realized that Uber just had a big text box to run queries against the warehouse and that's it. No other controls, no BI, no oh, nothing. Gosh. Just <laughs> free form. Anyone in the company <laughs> sits down, writes SQL into a text box, and the warehouse well, better run it. Well, my uh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, that's how we felt. What, the, yeah. what a wild west the internet is sometimes. <laughs> it is. It is pretty impressive. I, there are a lot of interesting stories around the limitations of that model. Um, they come up pretty hard and fast, but I decided to teach an internal class at Uber and I was like, here's how you write SQL better. And here's how you can optimize the performance because you can't just throw anything at this, uh, warehouse. It's like, a the warehouse is a Ferrari and you can't just like, you know, turn the key and like <laughs> slam on the gas pedal. And, go. <laughs> uh, and, wow. uh, and that's when. Kyle attended that seminar and he's like, oh, what's this guy? He's going to teach me about SQL. Like, well, I'm going to ask him the hard questions about SQL. And so he he asked me a couple of hard questions and we had a good back and forth. And one question I was like, I don't know how to gap fill dates in SQL. That's an interesting challenge you pose. Let me get back to you. And then a few days later, I was like, I read the docs. Here's how you would do it. He, Kyle's like, okay, cool. I like you. You're, you're, you're a good, you're a smart guy. <laughs> and so from there to the genesis of the company, it just turned into, okay, well, what do other data teams do? What tools do they need? Like I had to teach a course that obviously doesn't scale. How do we fix that? So we built a lot of tooling to prevent bad queries at Uber to pretty much scale that same knowledge of like, we know this will be a bad query. We're just not going to run it. And then I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, but talking to other people in the space, like listening to tools that, uh, the tooling that other companies built in the space, everyone sort of builds the same thing. I, I know we're in the data quality space, so let's take that as the uh, basic example. Every single data engineering team will get to a certain size where they will build a tool that read 
takes a SQL query, runs it on a schedule, and then sends you a message if the query either fails or returns like more than zero records. This is a tool that everyone reinvents the wheel on, everybody. And every team will start there, and then they're like, okay, well, now anyone can write these queries, but now they have to be maintained, and now we have to like maintain the notifications, and now yeah. we want to do uh, anomaly detection rather than constant thresholds. And then next thing you know, you have a team of six people supporting a little, like, well, a big Python script now <laughs> doing all of this work. And <laughs> that that was sort of how we went from, okay, well, at Uber, we needed to scale our own knowledge and our own understanding of how to solve these business level problems. And once we started listening to, like going to meetups, talking to other teams, talking to other folks in the data space, we realized everyone's solving the same problem. Everyone has the same problems. I mean, this is why dev tools exist, right? Because all developers have the same problems. Like I need my version control. I need my like CICD pipeline. And those problems are solved with dev tools, but the data teams have historically just not had the same sort of access to tooling and everyone would build it themselves. And so we saw the corollary there and we realized that it was a good time to build tools for data teams. And I think in particular, we, in the beginning, we didn't initially set out to do data quality specifically, actually. Um, the, I, there were, let's see, I'm going to say four or five distinct either tools or underlying microservices that my team had to build out data catalog, data lineage, freshness tracking, quality testing, incident management. We had an internal data incident management product. There was a product for making announcements about changes. Um, so for example, you know, you have a table, you're going to remove a column from the table. You may be impacting 50 other people at the company. You may be impacting 300 people at the company. You don't know who they are. Um, so there were tools for, you know, pick a column. I'm going to deprecate this column, trace the lineage graph and show me everybody downstream from me who's queried that in the last 90 days or any of its descendants. Um, and that way I can file a message to just those individuals um, and say, hey, two weeks from now, going to drop this column. If you have a problem with that, you know, here's a comment box and, and they can just comment directly back and say, hey, please don't take this away. Like, I, you know, I need this or can you delay it by another couple of weeks or that type of thing? So there was a constellation of these um, small tools. The, the catalog was, you know, a little less small. It was more fully featured, but all those kind of things kind of combined and helped us deal with the number of tables in the warehouse and, um, and the lake that we were dealing with and the number of users. So there were about 3000 people a week in 2017 that were writing a query, creating a dashboard, building a new pipeline, et cetera, and trying to coordinate 3,000 people that don't know each other. Um, obviously, you know, you got to lean on tools pretty hard at that point. Um, so when Igor and I left, to, the idea was just work on data tools. Um, that was kind of it. Um, so the question was, okay, well, based on what we saw, what should we build? Um, like which of those tools that we had experienced learning, you know, as we built them, would be most useful out in the world for everybody else. Um, so we started talking to data engineers at some startups, some larger companies, um, and we just basically asked them like, what's most annoying or painful or difficult? And can you stack rank those things for me? Um, and uh, quality problems, broken pipelines, not knowing that a dashboard was, you know, had no data in it for two days. Um, that was, even if it wasn't number one, it was pretty often at least number two or three in that stack rank. So that's what kind of led us to, um, start doing what we're doing now. Cool. And minor pivot on this, because you both worked together, you kind of knew that you vibed, you got along uh, in the workplace. Is it a very similar type of relationship when you become co-founders together? Or did you kind of have to 
have certain conversations, check certain boxes before actually working. Igor made a face. He he's thinking. I, oh, I think that's this. a that's <laughs> critical. I wouldn't. I don't know if I would do this again with somebody that I had not already a worked with, mm. uh, and b am okay working with and being friends with. Um, because I feel like when you're co-founders, you kind of have to be both at the same time a little bit. Um, so if you if you haven't worked with the other person, that seems risky because mm-hmm. you don't know what they're going to be like. And right. if you're unable to be friends with the other person, I mean, at the end of the, at the end of the week, like Igor and I hop on Zoom and we have a beer together. And if you can't do that because you can't tolerate each other as friends, that feels pretty rough too. <laughs> so you mentioned, yeah, kind of doing this stack rank of stuff to figure it out. Um, what was the MVP? Did you build that while you were still at Uber? Did you, you know, leave and go out and raise venture funding? What, how did you, what was the MVP? How'd you get started? I'll let Igor talk about the MVP. I will, I will say that a big concern of mine, I mean, anybody who was following Uber in the news around that time knew about Anthony Lewandowski. It was a little chaotic uh, around then. Yeah. That was, (laughs) that was the situation, right? Um, now what we're doing has basically nothing to do with Uber's core business and, or, you know, IP, that type of thing. So even if it's highly unlikely that they would object to us building a company, um, you know, that leveraged what we learned while we were there, um, I still wanted to be pretty careful about not even having the appearance that we were sort of directly airlifting anything out of the company. Um, so no, we both definitely left and and started from scratch. That was important to me just to be um, sure that that wasn't going to be a problem. Gotcha. And, and for background, for folks who don't know, uh, Anthony Lewandowski, he was a engineer who worked on the AI self-driving side, who then went to a competitor and sort of accused of taking some proprietary IP with him. Is that, did I get that roughly right? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, roughly. Roughly. Folks can look it up. We'll put a, I'll put a link in the show notes for a better description. All right. So then Igor, onto you. So you made a clean break. I got that. Then you had to go and build an MVP. What'd you do? Who, you know? Let's hear it. I think the the clean break part of it is also interesting and goes back to the uh, to Cassidy's point of like, is right. it different working with each other versus being co-founders? I think the I will be f- vague about this just because I don't like it's going to take me hours to tell the the whole story. But <laughs> you have to have the difficult conversations up front of mm-hmm. like this is what I expect out of a business. This is what I personally want. This is what I want to do professionally. And you need to get on the same page with the rest of your founding team. Otherwise, things just don't work out. I mean, this is also why it's so hard to hire early engineers is because you have to make sure they they professionally and personally want things that can be provided by your company rather than saying, well, I want to make half a million dollars a year in cash and work on like fun, <laughs> esoteric programming languages. And it's like, probably not the right environment for you. Um, so that's we had all those conversations. We put money in a bank. Kyle and I just wrote a check each. Uh, We split the company 50-50 and we said, great, this is the company fund. We will pay ourselves out of the company fund, a nominal salary, and this will last us for a year. And if at the end of the year we have no more money in the bank, then we call it a day. We tried. Maybe we should just go back to not being founders. Um, luckily we got money before the end of that, uh, through AS venture funding, uh, we raised our seed round late 2019. So we got started in April, 2019. And until then we mostly said, well, let's start building something and showing it to people. So we just sat together in like, uh, on zoom and we works at the time we were, we started remote, we're still remote and we would just work on a product and 
go and talk to people. That's all we did for the first six months of the company is you're either built building something and trying it out, or you're talking to potential customers or you're talking to investors. And I think that that is, that was the whole, the only thing that the two of us did for six months. And by August, we had a little prototype on my laptop, which I literally just carried my laptop to a, a potential customer. And I'm like, please look at my product. Like, it's very cool. It will solve <laughs> your problem. And then the customer would say, well, it doesn't do X, Y, and Z. I don't like it. And then we we go back and we're like, okay, they don't like X, Y, and Z. Let's change X, Y, and Z. And then we'll email them a week after that and say, we changed X, Y, and Z. Please look at our product again. And we did that a couple of times. I will say, though, the core concept that was present in the MVP is still present in the application today, which is something that I think is is a good mm-hmm. sign um, that like the basic idea of run a query on the warehouse, get a get a value back, put it in a time series, do something with the time series like that basically was the initial MVP. There's no anomaly detection there. Certainly no data lineage, no metadata monitoring. There was no it wasn't SAS. It just ran on a local machine. But the basic idea of run a query on a table in a warehouse, fetch a statistic back, create a time series out of it, and then send a notification when the time series is not what you expect. Um, that's kind of been in there since since the beginning. So I'm excited to see that that survived for two, three years now. Um, <laughs> so you, had, you, were, you were walking around with this laptop. You, you sort of knew that there was product market fit in there somewhere um, and later found out that even the kernel was good. You didn't have to sell out to make money. Um, so talk to me about, yeah, like, you know, based on your experience at previous startups or at Uber, you know, your discussions with each other, what was the tech stack you chose? Is that still the same one you use? And what architecture decisions do you regret or, you know, glad you made? I'll start with the language conversation because everyone always asks for some reason what language we write in. I am a Java guy. I like strongly typed languages. I think Java's ecosystem is mature. There are build tools for it. Like everything just kind of works and there's a library for everything. I don't I don't have to reinvent the wheel on anything. Um, so we wrote the whole backend in Java. The one thing that I do regret is we didn't really have any front-end experience. So we kind of just figured it out using Bootstrap and like just HTML files. And Classic. We, That's a very backend developer energy there. <laughs> and to make it worse, <laughs> Cassidy, if we actually used Mustache to generate the HTML files <laughs> and just did server-side rendering of Mustache files. And so we literally had Mustache generating not just HTML, but also JavaScript wow. at times. And then render, shoving that whole thing into a web browser. And <laughs> th- speaking of architectural decisions, I regret... Just hire a oh, front-end gosh. engineer. Like I should have just either learned React or hired a front-end engineer because gosh, it yeah. took us a year and a half to unwind that. By the time <laughs> we like had a proper engineering team and we're like, we're ready to like actually migrate all the old pages into React now, we had so much logic and cruft there that it just took a long, long, long time. Yeah, that sounds like a very so, hairy rewrite. Gosh. Interesting, but chaotic. <laughs> chaotic. The that said, Java for as a backend helps because JDBC is everywhere, and any database talks JDBC, and so it's very easy for us to build abstractions on top of talk to the database and get something back. And that was a great architectural decision. It's just 
any database, SQL is SQL, a database is a database, it's going to talk JDBC. Sure, there's going to be some exceptions to the rule and like some methods aren't supported, but for the most part, it just works. And then from an infrastructure perspective, um, there is a great talk. It actually, um, I don't know how many uh, people know it, it's called Choose Boring Technology. Um, that is one of the core principles. I don't know it, but I've read articles yeah. about it, and I, it's it's a smart concept. I will I'll send it. I'll send it in the chat. We can post it in the uh, notes. But it the notion there is you as an organ as an engineering organization only have so many innovation tokens to use, and you want to use them on something that is actually value add to your business and organization rather than doing something interesting. And so I subscribe to that. I also feel like I over-index a little bit on that because Uber built, like I mentioned earlier, Uber built everything in-house and themselves. And I thought that 80% of the time that was the wrong decision. Mm. And so our stack is like, we, we run a Java backend, a React frontend, a MySQL server is behind everything, and we use RabbitMQ for our queuing. Like very boring tech, like very proven boring technologies power the whole thing. We have Docker containers running on Amazon. Like nothing innovative, nothing new here, but it works and it helps us just focus on the things that matter to us, which is build interesting, cool things into the product. Yeah, it makes your ideas stand out because you're not being bogged down by like, what if we did this really cool thing, but there's no yeah. questions on Stack Overflow about it because only like five mm -hmm. people use it so far, but it's neat, yeah. you know? Yeah, you did all your reinventing the wheel when you were at uh, Uber building the tools that people needed. So now you can just use the things that work and solve the problems people have. Without describing it in too much specificity, um, because I did really appreciate that it was built and that it did work, um, there was a, a service that was fairly important in the um, data tools stack that we worked with. And um, that service was written in a very it's not it's not a language that nobody's heard of, but it's definitely not one of the common ones. Um, and we got to a point where on my team of 12, at some point, at one point, four people uh, worked on this service. They all knew that language, et cetera. So it wasn't a problem. Um, people changed teams, people leave the company, et cetera. And after a year or two, um, there was one person left on the team uh, who still knew <laughs> the language that the service was written in. And uh, that that became a problem. Um, so this engineer came to me, and they were like, "Hey, by the way, uh, I need I need some time in the roadmap over the next you know month or so because uh, the service is having some issues, and I'm the only one on the team who who knows how to work on it." Um, and I was like, "Well, that's that's not good. That's not good for the team." Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, sometimes getting too creative or or too optimized mm -hmm. uh, can uh, can bite you later for sure. Yeah, it reminds me. I I did a client project once where they wanted to. In addition to like web apps and everything, they wanted to build a Roku app. And the creator of Roku made their own programming language called BrightScript that is only used on Roku. And and it it was so unnecessary. They could have used anything else, anything else. And I had to learn this whole new language just to build this one application. And then when it was done, they didn't know how to maintain it because it was a language that nobody else knew. It's not worth it. Interesting. All right. So yeah, I, I'll take us towards the exit here. Could you maybe quickly define for me first in layman's terms and then you know, for, for folks who are listening who might be interested either because they work with data themselves or, or they might be clients, 
what are the key things that you're measuring when it comes to to data health? I know you, you talked about running a sequence and you know time sequence looking for anomalies, but like, you know, what are the things that you found to be the most salient as folks go from data warehouses to data lakes to data oceans? You know, like we're we're all drowning in data. What are the most salient things you found? You know, over your first uh, t- you know the, the time you've been in business, um, and how do you think that will evolve? You know, sort of as you build out from here. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think. Before talking about the specific, you know, a lot of people jump to like, what attributes of data are you actually tracking to identify problems? Or how are you doing anomaly detection? And, and, you know, those are certainly fun questions. But I think there's kind of a boring one that you have to get out of the way first, which is like, okay, let's say that we have a magic way of identifying a problem uh, in a data pipeline. And I can point you to the table that's having the problem, etc. How do we actually measure where we're having problems, when we're having problems, how frequently, uh, what's the impact of those problems? Um, you know, I think that's sort of the the higher level question that um, often comes second. Um, and the way that we approach that question is we just, again, we borrow a boring concept, which is SLAs, right? Mm-hmm. So we've, we've had service level agreements. I mean, they even predate software, right? What were they used in like telecom or something like that or, uh, a long time ago? Yeah. So I'm, We've had service level agreements as a concept for multiple decades at this point. Um, so instead of reinventing the wheel around like a data quality score, a data health score, like some you know abstract notion of like, is the data good or not? And if it's a 98, then it's good. And if it's a 94, then it's not good enough, but nobody knows exactly what the difference between a 94 and a 98 is exactly. Um, so instead of instead of that, um, we we try to leverage service level agreements and say instead, um, you know, what, what defines good enough for a table uh, or for a pipeline? So um, maybe you have some null values, Nicole. Maybe you have some duplicate IDs, um, but at the end of the day, if you're using that data as you know training data for a model and having a quarter of a percent duplicate IDs or null values just doesn't materially impact your model and you know that, um, then you don't need to check that there are exactly zero duplicates. You just need to check that it's within tolerance. Um, and so what we uh, try to answer first is, uh, or help customers answer first is like, how do I create a, a service level agreement for the data that's feeding something that the business cares about. So the dashboard that the C-suite looks at, a machine learning model that's you know used inside the, the product, maybe it makes recommendations inside the mm. product to your users. Um, what is the definition of good enough for those mm. applications mm-hmm. at the end of the pipeline, basically? And then you work backwards from there. Um, and then from that, that may yield things like, well, we need to know, again, like I mentioned, that we don't have any duplicate user IDs or that we don't have any null you know, maybe we're looking at like a product uh, product name and we know that our model is going to recommend, you know, a different product name. Product name shouldn't be null. Um, or we know that there are 16 distinct product names. And if we see that double to 32 overnight, then, you know, something's wrong. Right. Um, so those are the types of things uh, that we're going to track in the data. I think we now have over 70 different attributes that we can track for that are built in. Um, I think the other the other big learning we had is that not all tracking needs to happen at the same granularity at the same time. A lot of teams prefer to just roll out really, really basic stuff. Freshness. Is the data updating on time? Yes or no? Um, super simple. And they want that everywhere. And they want it immediately. Um, they don't want to configure that. They just want it tracked everywhere. Or how many rows are in the table? Um, super basic. And then for the stuff that's important, then they want to go deeper. That's when they want nulls, duplicates, um, average standard deviation, 
um, social security number format, state codes, whatever. And then there's an, yet another layer on top of that beyond that, which is super, super specific business logic. You know, I need to join these two tables. And if a column, a column value in the first table is X, then it needs to be Y in the other, the other column in the other table. Um, so that was another big learning for us is that teams need to go sort of progressively from the most basic stuff everywhere to more detailed stuff on a limited amount of data and then to like hyper specific, you know, very mm. custom stuff on an even smaller subset. Great. It's funny. I Cassidy encouraged me to get into the world of 3D printing. One of my sons is now like a tabletop miniature gamer. So <laughs> printing crude plastic objects actually has a lot of value. Um, so I was downloading some software. It's like the first time in a while, I guess I've been used like community driven software and man, there's a lot of null, a lot of null out there. That's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to name any names. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I will shout out the winner of a lifeboat badge, somebody who came on Stack Overflow and saved a little knowledge from the dustbin of history. I've been looking for like the past few days, but there's no new lifeboats. So when that happens, I go over uh, to the inquisitive badge. Somebody who asked a well-received question on 30 separate days and has maintained a positive question record. So thanks to Funzo, awarded yesterday for asking so many good questions. I am Ben Popper. I'm the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. Email us with questions or suggestions, podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you like the show, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps. My name is Cassidy Williams. You can find me at Cassidoo, C-A-S-S-I-D-O-O on most things. I do developer experience at Remote and OSS Capital. Uh, this is Kyle. I'm the CEO and co-founder at Big Eye. And you can find me online and most places at, at Kyle James Kerwin, K-I-R-W-A-N. And I'm Igor, uh, co-founder and CTO at Big Eye. You can find me on LinkedIn, Igor Grasnov, <laughs> E-G-O-R, last name G-R-Y-A-Z-N-O-V. It's a tough one for, <laughs> for most folks. Uh, <laughs> I am primarily on LinkedIn, sadly, haven't been on Twitter in years at this point. But And you can find it's out more sad. about... <laughs> it's okay. You're not missing it. It's okay. And you can find out more about Big Eye uh, by going to bigeye.com. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. And we will talk to you soon. Bye.